Hello and welcome to the Intersection Podcast with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. In this edition of the podcast, you'll be hearing comments regarding a dramatic decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in its response to the Dobbs case dealing with Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban and the High Court's decision on striking down Roe v. Wade. First up, you'll be hearing from Brad Mattis of Life Issues Institute, providing insight on the implications of that decision and the work of the pro-life movement going forward, building on the foundation of the past years of compassionate ministry to women and families in crisis. Next, from And Then There Were None and Pro-Love Ministries, former Planned Parenthood director and now strong voice for life, Abby Johnson, shares her perspective on the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And on this edition of The Intersection, Chuck Donovan of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, an arm of the Susan B. Anthony List, a 50-year veteran of the pro-life movement, offers words of celebration as well as analysis of the decision in the case. Plus, Katherine Beck-Johnson from Family Research Council brings her unique insight into how the decision lines up with the U.S. Constitution. It is now up to each state to determine its own laws on abortion. Finally, there's more from the U.S. Supreme Court as Leah Patterson of First Liberty discusses a high court victory in a case out of Maine involving parents who were denied participation in a program offering public funds for public and private schools but in which religious schools could not take part. Well, this is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. The co-founder and president of Life Issues Institute, Brad Mattis, who is heard on the Life Issues radio feature on Faith Radio, provided comments relative to the implications of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, including how Christians can now continue to build on the foundation of compassion for women and their families who are dealing with a crisis pregnancy. Here now is Brad Mattis from that recent conversation here on the Intersection Podcast. We have about 21 states that totally uh, protect unborn babies and others that significantly uh, protect unborn babies like Texas with the Heartbeat Act at six weeks. So 21 states will largely protect their babies. Another nine states uh, will likely pass pro-life legislation to significantly further advance their protection for babies. Uh, my state of Florida is, is one of those. We protect them from 15 weeks on, but I expect that we will see that um, hopefully from the moment of uh, fertilization. But just stop and think for a minute that as of this morning with the, the release of that ruling, all of those laws that are on the books, trigger laws, uh, pre-row laws, go into effect if if they have if they aren't in um, in the legal system of being uh, you know appealed like one of yours is uh, your governor has stated she's going to um, work immediately to have that uh, taken care of mm-hmm. and it's just amazing it's absolutely amazing that the thousands of babies that are going to be saved and many babies scheduled for abortion today will be saved because of this ruling. 
Brad Mattis joining us today. He has heard on the radio feature Life Issues, which is aired on Faith Radio, the president of Life Issues Institute. And we recognize, and you mentioned that in the not-too-distant future, you're looking at close to 30 states that will have abortion bans to, to some extent in place. But you've also got—that leaves— 20 states that either do not have laws on the books concerning abortion or states like Colorado and New York that have legislation on the books and these states already gearing up to offer women, a, as you might say, and I, I don't particularly care for this language, but a, a sanctuary, a haven where they can actually go to terminate the lives of their unborn child. So, while this is a victory and it certainly is worth celebrating, it also reminds us that there is plenty of work to do with respect to the pro-life movement. Oh, absolutely. And that is important to bring that up because I, I believe 20 states is correct that will be uh, significant challenges for us to pass protective measures for babies and their mothers. And uh, as you mentioned California, New York, New Jersey, uh, Illinois may be abortion havens where women can go to have uh, their babies uh, aborted. Uh, but And that just goes to show that we have a great deal of work, um, a dramatic uh, amount of work ahead of us. But you know, the grassroots, Bob, is where our movement um, is the strongest. And, and that's where we have abilities to work hard when you have grassroots pro-lifers uh, knowing that they could make an immediate impact if they can pass legislation. They're going to be doing everything they can to pass that legislation, understanding, of course, that um, in some places, several states, um, that may not be a possibility today. But like this is where Life Issues Institute, I think, is so important. We continue that educational process. Uh, Planned Parenthood in the abortion industry understand that they can only continue killing babies if the American public don't understand what abortion is. So we have to make sure that they do. We need to educate millions of Americans to that reality. And when we do, when we open that window to the womb with the educational tools we have as at Life Issues Institute or as a movement, and the people peer in, um, many come to the conclusion that these are babies that must be protected. Brad Mattis here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the organization through lifeissues.org. Next, it's former Planned Parenthood director and founder and CEO of And Then There Were None, as well as founder of Pro Love Ministries. Her name is Abby Johnson. She spoke with me regarding the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade and offered her own perspective on that decision and its significance. Here now from that conversation is Abby Johnson. I'm very excited about the decision. I've, you know, I've seen the destruction that Roe caused over the years. I've, you know, seen the destruction in my own life personally. I've seen the destruction um, in, in other people's lives. And um, I'm, I'm excited to see honestly, the, the beauty that, that comes uh, from Roe being overturned. And, um, you know, I, the pro-life movement has been waiting on this for 49 years. We have been preparing for this moment. 
for decades. And so we are we are ready. We are we have been waiting and we are ready now. As I understand it, Pro-Love Ministries is a relatively new ministry. Share with me about how God has raised that ministry up. Yeah, so Pro-Love Ministries is a ministry with several projects underneath it. One of them that, you know, people are sort of most familiar with and the one that's gotten uh, the most attention, especially lately, is a project we have called Bloodline. Loveline, uh, people can find out more about it at loveline.com. It is a 24-hour crisis hotline. So it is for women in crisis pregnancies. It is for single moms, single dads who are in need of help, um, whether they're pregnant or not. Um, it is for anyone in a state of crisis. And it's really, you know, we, we did it sort of as a response, praying that Roe would be overturned, knowing that you know, this, this sort of help would be needed. And uh, it's, it, you know, we have just this year given out over $200,000 in resources, paid, you know, back rent, you, you know, past due utilities, given out resources, held dozens and dozens of online baby showers for women who were in need. Um, we have served over 2,000 people. Uh, so it, it is... It, it is really something that is desperately needed right now. It seems like the needs are infinite. Uh, people that are just in need of support, this is really an opportunity for the church to be the church, mm. uh, to, to accompany women on their journey and to say, you know what, you're in crisis. We are here to help. We're here to journey with you. And Abby, if you would, from your perspective, and I, I love what you were saying earlier about this is something that since Roe was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court almost 50 years ago, this is something that the pro-life movement has been preparing for, not to mention praying for and working toward. And now now this is a moment not to rest on our laurels, if you will, and of course give all the credit to God, but this gives those people that call themselves pro-life and their allies this opportunity to build on that firm, strong foundation that has been built up for the last five decades. And yes, things are going to change. From your standpoint, someone who is very involved and plugged into the pro-life movement, how do you see things changing, especially, for instance, in a state like Alabama, where all the abortion clinics now, as a result of Roe v. Wade, are are closed, and you have a strong pro-life bill that has gone into effect. Other states, the same sort of situation. It's certainly not a time to just sit back and relish our victories, is it? No, I mean, no, this is a this is a time really for Christians, for pro-lifers to really double down on our efforts, because just because in these red states, and I, I live in one, too, I live in Texas, mm. just because, you know, abortion clinics may close does not mean that crisis pregnancies end. I mean, absolutely not. Um, crisis pregnancies will continue. And this is a time for us to really double down on our efforts. Crisis pregnancies, helplines like Loveline, uh, maternity homes. We are going to need your help now more than ever. Abby Johnson here on The Intersection. You can learn more about And Then There Were None by going to abortionworker.com. 
The website for Pro Love Ministries is prolovministries.org. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. There are also links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as to the Apple Podcast feed. You can also connect to video content through a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You can also go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from guests featured on the Intersection podcast, as well as the Meeting House program, can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and others. Continuing now with this edition of the Intersection podcast, Chuck Donovan, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, the education and research arm of the Susan B. Anthony List, provided analysis and commentary regarding the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, which included the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Here now from that conversation is Chuck Donovan. I think people were um, a little bit surprised when the, when the draft opinion leaked about a month ago, six weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, that it went as far as to reverse row. There, there was certainly a lot of opinion among my colleagues after the oral argument last December that the court could simply say, yes, Mississippi's 15-week law is reasonable. Um, but the problem with that was that in order to reach that, the court would have to discard uh, the created framework of Roe versus Wade, which invented this whole trimester system with respect to what laws we could have respecting uh, protecting the unborn. And I think at the end of the day, uh, the the realists on the court, and I would particularly cite Justice Alito, um, went to the core question is, what basis is there in the Constitution for the justices of the Supreme Court to start uh, writing uh, medical standards, weighing moral issues, and dividing different divisions of pregnancy? It's not the kind of things courts are equipped to do. And, of course, uh, terms like viability, uh, things like fetal surgery, uh, ultrasound identification of all sorts of uh, incredible characteristics in the unborn, all of these things were moving the needle medically. And I think the court realized it was not a medical board. There was no constitutional warrant for this. And five of the justices, fortunately, had courage enough to say, we're going to give this back to the people and their elected representatives to decide. Leading up to this ruling today, I, I think that the wild card was how was the chief justice going to right. come down on this issue? What influence would he try to exert? What could he come up with to try to preserve, quote unquote, the integrity of the court or whatever? And so what yes. do you think was going on with the chief justice? Well, I think he has had a doctrine as long as he's been on the court of deciding and limiting himself to the question scarce squarely before the court. So the question is certified for the Supreme Court's consideration 
was whether or not a state could protect uh, or have a standard for limiting abortion that was pre-viability. So they could have answered yes, and that's all he wished to do was answer yes to Mississippi, but reserve judgment for later. I I think he was uh, excessively concerned about the court managing what it thought would be a rough landing with respect to uh, reversing Roe versus Wade. I think the other justices are saying it's been a rough 50-year flight, and this is not the business we should be in in the first place. And if you look at Justice uh, Thomas's concurrence, uh, he goes squarely to the question whether the whole of the court's jurisprudence on what's called substantive due process is correct. And that's uh, the, the tendency in the court's ruling to decide uh, policy questions, very sensitive ones indeed, But uh, I think Justice Thomas more squarely faced the question whether the court has this authority at all or whether the people's elected representatives can decide about things such as pornography, drug use, abortion, uh, social questions that affect the the health and well-being of individuals as well as communities. Um, The majority of the justices here, I would say, are split between uh, Kavanaugh and uh, perhaps one or two others who just think it's not the court's job. Uh, Others like Justice Alito think that the courts are um, are particularly ill-equipped for this and the American people can be trusted to do the right thing. Chuck Donovan from the Charlotte Lozier Institute here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the organization by going to Lozier, that's L-O-Z-I-E-R, institute.org. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, It's Catherine Beck-Johnson. She serves as Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies for Family Research Council. In our recent conversation, she brought her unique insight into how the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade lines up with the U.S. Constitution and how it is now up to each state to determine its own laws regarding abortion. Here now from that recent Meeting House conversation is Catherine Beck-Johnson. Justice Alito brilliantly goes through every single possible point the left could make in <laughs> finding a so-called right to an abortion in the Constitution, and he rebukes all of them. He says, you know, first and foremost, there is no right to an abortion written in the Constitution. So that rules out any textualist argument for a right to an abortion. He says, second of all, we could look through the lens of history. And it has abortion been an understood fundamental right in our nation's history since the beginning of our founding? And he said, that's very much not the case. This is a so-called right that was founded less than 50 years ago. So this is not embedded in the history and tradition of our nation. And then there's the principle of stare decisis, which is keeping the understanding for the sake of stability in our country. And there's a whole test that you have to go through of whether or not a decision deserves stare decisis, even if it was not decided correctly the first time. And he brilliantly goes through that test and says why abortion does not and why Roe and Casey do not deserve stare decisis. He said, first and foremost, this has not created further stability in our nation. If we look at abortion in our country, it's anything but settled law. The people have not accepted Roe and Casey. And he said, and Casey has not provided proper guidance to the lower courts. It is such a 
misguided opinion that the lower courts can't decipher what is an undue burden on women. Is it if a woman has to drive 30 miles, it's an undue burden, but not if she has to drive 20 miles. It was a whole hogwash of nothing, basically. <laughs> so Justice Alito really brilliantly goes through every single argument that the left could possibly make and says why abortion is not a fundamental right. And, of course, you have those that are opposed to the Supreme Court decision that that say and, and decry the fact, or in their estimation, that the Supreme Court in this decision has actually taken away a right. This is something that's unprecedented. It's never been done before by the court. So how do you respond to those that would say that the Supreme Court somehow— have taken, you know, I would submit this is this is obviously something that the Supreme Court was erroneous in granting, and of course, I would also mention the right of the unborn child. But to, to those that would say that the Supreme Court has taken away a right, what would be your response? Well, you you nailed it. It's not they didn't take away a right; they informed you that your right never existed, mm. and it was erroneously given. And second of all, it's. It's, they took away a right for the first time insofar as you could say that they took away a slaveholder's right to have slaves. I mean, this is something that was wrongly decided to begin with. The court has overturned precedent, and thankfully the court is willing to overturn precedent when they've been wrong in terms of segregation and now in terms of abortion. And so it really is a good thing that the court is willing to overturn erroneous decisions. And now, like you said, this will permit unborn children to be protected in America, which is a step forward in terms of granting rights to people. Catherine Beck Johnson here on the Intersection Podcast. You can learn more about Family Research Council by going to frc.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Leah Patterson, She is counsel for First Liberty Institute, and in a recent conversation, she reviewed the case of Carson v. Macon, in which parents in Maine had challenged the state's program offering public funding for students in remote areas to attend public and private schools, but exempt schools that provide religious instruction. That situation was corrected by the high court ruling. Here now with some analysis is Leah Patterson. We were challenging a provision in Maine's high school tuition program. So how this program works is that Maine's school districts, many of them are too small to justify having a public high school. So in those cases, for for those families, the state will pay tuition up to a certain amount for the families to send their children to the public or private school of their choice unless the school is religious. So that was the exclusion (laughs) that we challenged. Wow, that's a red flag. Supreme Court. It, yes, uh, a big red flag right there. And and the Supreme Court agreed, striking it down yesterday. And you, you look at this particular case, to me, it seems like this, and, and, and I'm sorry, I just kind of popped in there and said this is a red flag because you've got people being 
refused admission into this overall program because a school is religious pro a religious program. That sounds like that's that's cut and dried in light of religious freedom law and, and also as we're going to be talking about in light of a couple of decisions from the US Supreme Court over the past few years. So what sort of justification did the state of Maine give for actually denying religious schools participation in the program? Well, there are a few justifications, and I'll walk through, walk through a couple of them. So the exclusion was originally adopted back in 1980 when the Supreme Court case law was a little bit different because the Maine Attorney General thought that including religious schools would be a violation of the Establishment Clause. Mm. Now, the Supreme Court clarified over a decade ago in, in the early 2000s that that's not a correct understanding of the Establishment Clause and that allowing religious schools to participate equally in a, in a school choice program does not actually violate the Establishment Clause. But Maine kept its religious exclusion around. So when we were going up in the litigation, what, what Maine was arguing is basically because the program didn't, and I'm, this is going to sound like hair splitting, and it is, um, but this is the actual <laughs> argument. For the warning. <laughs> that because the program didn't discriminate against schools and families because of their religious identity, it just prohibited the religious use of funds. So to sum that up, they thought they said, we're not discriminating against people because they're religious, but because they do religious things. Okay, well, our argument is that there's no difference. That, yeah. that really is a distinction without any kind of useful difference. And the Supreme Court agreed with that. There's actually a quote in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion to that effect. If you wouldn't mind, kind of walk us through what has occurred with respect to case law before the U.S. Supreme Court that has, it seems like, maybe built on on one another to uh, to bring us to a, a different state of affairs with respect to religious liberty now than when this main law was passed in 1980. Well, you know, the, the first of those cases was called Zellman, and that, that's the case I mentioned from the early 2000s that said it was not an Establishment Clause violation to include religious schools in a school choice program. But there are a couple of other more recent decisions. So the first is Trinity Lutheran. That was a 2017 case dealing with a playground grant program to provide resurfacing. And Missouri prohibited a church from resurfacing its, its playground for its daycare because the, the church is a religious entity and there was a, an exclusion that, that prohibited religious entities from receiving state, uh, state funding. Now, the Supreme Court struck that down, saying that you know, it was a violation of the Free Exercise Clause to exclude organizations because of their religious identity. And you know, just asserting an Establishment Clause interest that isn't necessarily there doesn't justify discrimination that violates the free exercise clause. So basically the, the court's saying you can't use the establishment clause as a boogeyman and say, mm. you know, quote, separation of church and state, so we, we shouldn't give any money to religious organizations. That language isn't in the Constitution. That's not how it works, and it doesn't justify discrimination. So that is the, the Trinity Lutheran decision, and the court built on that specifically in the school choice 
realm in Espinosa versus Montana, which came down while our case was pending. Leah Patterson here on The Intersection. You can learn more at first, spell it out, firstliberty.org. Well, we are nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by going to the programming section at faithradio.org. Through the Meeting House homepage, you can connect to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the podcast. There are links to the podcast, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple Podcast feed. And there are links to video content, including a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.